happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for June the 6th, 2018, episode 97. Thrilled to be joining you from three different locales here in the United States. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am joining you from Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School, and actually appreciate how we were able to delay a little bit, because full disclosure, we had a delayed uh, 22nd anniversary uh, dinner tonight at the Outback, which is our, our favorite spot. So anyway, a little bit more time, and I got to read a little more, a few more articles, and that's always a good thing. So I will pass it up to, I think, Missoula, Montana, Jason, or are you traveling? Do you travel with the map just in case you <laughs> check in? A portable set that I bring along with me. No, I am joining tonight from fabulous Missoula, Montana, where I am the director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus. And um, sad times at the Casa de Nifer James, uh, our exchange student that we've grown very close to over the last nine months, leaves tomorrow back home for Sweden. And so um, Albin, our kiddo, is out right now saying goodbye to friends, which is why I was uh, able to jump on tonight and and podcast. And, in fact, we're, we're so distraught that tomorrow after we drop him off at the airport, we're going to go to an undisclosed location for 72, 96 hours and uh, kind of lick our wounds. But um, it is beautiful here in Missoula. It's been a fabulous weather all week long, 80 degrees, and um, it's a very Montana spring slash summertime here in Missoula. And for the second week in a row, we're welcoming a guest, uh, a, a podcaster to our lovely show. Michael Crawford joins us from the Bay Area. No, I'm sorry, San Diego, California, uh, uh, San something or another. Uh, Michael, right. welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, my name is Michael Crawford. Uh, I am currently in San Diego, California. Uh, I am the Director of Strategy and Partnerships at Real World Scholars. Uh, and Real World Scholars is a nonprofit organization that helps classrooms start and run businesses. Uh, we consider ourselves a, a tech company, although we aren't uh, totally tech people, uh, but create tech solutions that allow educators uh, and students and community to really connect and, uh, and grow and learn together. And so really happy to be here. Uh, thanks again for inviting me. That is awesome. Awesome. Well, and another shout out to Beth Holland, who has arranged for the, the coordination here and the, and the invitation. Shout out to Peggy George, who's live in our chat room. And we do want to direct everybody to edtechsr.com slash links, where you can find links to all the articles, plus some that we will probably not get to tonight. And you can also, if you are able to join us live, um, just uh, to the sidebar of our YouTube, you should be able to join the live chat that is there. So, um, Michael, can you just tell us, a little, how did you end up getting involved with this nonprofit? And uh, we'll segue before we just jump into the first article. What, How long and then how, what was your path to where sure. you're at right now? Sure. So uh, I'll start. Uh, I'll start at the beginning-ish. Uh, so I uh, went to school at the University of Michigan not knowing what I wanted to do. I knew uh, that I wanted to work to help adults make better decisions. I uh, was looking around at my, my friends and reading the news and reflecting on my own behavior uh, and felt like I could be better and, and we could all be better. And so I, I wanted to work with people in some capacity and help them to be a better version of themselves. Uh, education was kind of an obvious uh, way to go about that, although I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. I felt as though 
uh, teachers had some limited limitations around um, the scope or the scale of their impact. And so I thought, well, if I could work around education, if I could work in programs or with systems, uh, then I could have a, a broader impact. Uh, and so I started working in uh, the after school space uh, and really got interested in figuring out how nimble and flexible and adaptive that space could be in supporting young people. Uh, and in particular, I uh, became really interested in, in adolescence. Uh, so my thinking was, well, if I wanted to have an impact on adults in the ways that adults interact in the world, then the best way to do that would be to intervene right before they kind of take this jumping off point uh, into adulthood. Uh, and so that led me to a, uh, a PhD program at the University of Kansas, where I studied adolescent development. I'm currently all but dissertation. Uh, so I'm, I'm so close. I can, there's the, there's a light at the end of the we, tunnel. We are here um, to encourage you. Yeah. Yeah. We, we know that pain, brother. So I, keep running. I keep running and don't stop. I appreciate it. Uh, and, um, yeah. So I, uh, while, while working on that, uh, at the University of Kansas, I started working for the Kauffman Foundation, which is the foundation for entrepreneurship and education. And so it was there that I really kind of got We'll say I got bit by the entrepreneurship bug. Uh, I had, you know, my understanding of entrepreneurship before that was, uh, you know, rich tech guys on the Inc. magazine and Forbes and all these things. But it turns out entrepreneurship uh, is actually an incredible vehicle for the kinds of things that educators and, and folks uh, worried about human development uh, actually care about. Ed entrepreneurs are persistent. They're creative. They're resourceful. They're collaborative. These are all things that educators hope to uh, allow their young people to, to immerse themselves in and develop the skills as a result. Um, and so it was there that I started to see, wait a minute, there's a convergence here. There's something that's really special at this intersection. Uh, and so fast forward a little bit. Uh, I was working for a company called the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative out of Cleveland and doing some entrepreneurial mindset curriculum and, and programming. Uh, and the co-founder of Real World Scholars, uh, John Cahalan was on Twitter uh, and I was on Twitter and I was talking about something related to entrepreneurship and education. And he reached out and he said, hey, we're doing this thing. Uh, we're called Real World Scholars. Uh, we give classrooms uh, and teachers money to start student run businesses. You know, I'd love to share with you uh, some of the work that we do. So we started building a relationship there. Uh, a year or so passed. Uh, we met at a couple conferences. They came to Detroit where I was living, grabbed dinner. Um, and lo and behold, about, uh, let's see, February 2017, they reached out and said, hey, we are looking to grow our team. We think that you are uh, multilingual uh, in terms of education and entrepreneurship and business and systems and nonprofits. Uh, and we're looking to uh, we're looking to grow. So what do you think about San Diego? And I said, well, I looked out my uh, Metro Detroit window in February and I said, uh, San Diego sounds pretty good. Uh, and so you know, a couple months later after we figured out some details, made my way to, uh, to San Diego. And so now uh, it's been about a year and change um, since I've been with Real World Scholars. Uh, and we are, uh, we're doing really, really exciting work. Uh, if I, if I do say so myself, um, Real World Scholars was started with the goal or the hope of, uh, leveraging entrepreneurship as a, as a vehicle for young people, uh, to, to learn. Uh, and it, it, we continue to do that, uh, and we're also now developing a couple other projects that uh, we think can help kind of reinforce this community, education, teachers, students, business leaders, um, really at, at the convergence of, of those groups. And so that's, that's what we're up to these days.
Fantastic. Well, we'll include a link to Real World Scholars in our show notes and definitely encourage folks to reach out to you and uh, and, and check that out. So sure. um, we are going to break down some of the recent tech news. We had a big Apple event, the Worldwide Developers Conference uh, that happened, and I have not watched the whole thing. Uh, multiple videos. In fact, I we, we still have a third generation Apple TV and the newer one. On the new fourth generation, you can see a whole bunch of talks from uh, the the um, the the developer conference. I kind of think on the first one, it's just the keynote, um, but a very cute introductory video. Uh, if you're a fan of planet earth and I don't remember if it's David Attenborough or who the, you know, narrator, uh, for that is, um, anyway, they're, they're talking about the migration of the unique developers that, you know, came to California. So anyway, I know we've got that some security and some privacy, uh, Mr. Neifer, um, with, with the authority given to you by, the unstated projection map behind you. What? Where would you like to begin? <laughs> sure. Let, let's pick up on an article that that uh, we actually didn't uh, do from last week that got carried forward. That I actually thought was was pretty interesting. But um, Mary Meeker is a tech analyst and a venture capitalist, and she's released, I think, for a number of years now, an Internet Trends report. And so that was released last week. And there's a really great summary of, of that report and TechCrunch from. May 30th, and I just wanted to pick up on a couple of the the big picture things here that I thought was was pretty interesting. Uh, first and foremost, uh, as of 2018, half of the world's population, or about 3.6 billion people, are on the internet, and that is a very interesting statistic uh, that we've re- reached that much market penetration. We've talked in the past about internet.org, which is a lot of tech entrepreneurs' attempt to provide uh, new and novel ways to bring internet access to uh, 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 populations around the world that have not necessarily uh, had a deep penetration of the internet. So that obviously was an interesting statistic, but there's a couple of others I think um, uh, would also, I think, think they have some impact in the classroom. Uh, one of them is that, of course, uh, smartphones are, are definitely uh, the, the main access point now for individuals. Uh, uh, we've actually uh, gone up to 5.9 hours per day um, on our smartphones uh, as opposed to 5.6 hours the year before. And adults, which is who they're tracking in this, um, are obviously an upward trend. The reason why I think this is interesting is because at the same time we see an increase in devices and their, their, their use amongst adults, we are now seeing uh, vendors come to us with solutions to addiction problems. And we'll talk about Apple here in a couple of moments. But what I thought was really interesting about, if you juxtaposition Google's uh, uh, I.O. conference a few weeks ago with Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference with the Microsoft Build Conference that was the same time as the Google conference. There are a lot of themes that were interweaved between the three of them, but one thing that was very clear was that uh, manufacturers, device manufacturers, platform developers are now coming up with means to try to control our devices by adding in uh, uh, safeguards is probably the one way to put it, uh, in particular the Apple thing. And I, I really did enjoy watching the Apple keynote, even though there wasn't a, a ton of, of really uh, huge G-Wiz things on there. But one thing I did find interesting there is they are adding some you know, micro controls to your device that allows you to time you know, a particular app, shut down an app, take away the color from the screen. Uh, the resting phase for uh, iOS 12 will include a black and white screen overnight as opposed to a color screen taking off the notifications. But all these micro controls seem like an interesting thing juxtapositioned with the obvious increase in the amount we're using devices on a fairly regular basis. So um, again, a lot of interesting things there. The actual slideshow from 
uh, the analyst is like 300 slides long. So obviously no time to go through that in any sort of meaningful way. But my biggest takeaway from there is that we seem to have an increase in our usage of these devices. And there seems to be an acknowledgement and a counterbalance to that by manufacturers putting in ways to kind of back off. I would add one other interesting thing that that, that is there. Um, I, I was not able to find the slides yet that talk about the specifically TechCrunch noted in the education field that employers are seeking retraining and education from YouTube and online courses to keep up with new job requirements and pay off skyrocketing student loan debt. And um, that's a very, you know, since, you know, the distance learning is my, my industry, uh, that's a very simplistic way of looking at some way, the way someone might use YouTube to retrain themselves or have companies Companies utilize e-learning to train their workforce, but obviously a, con a, a continued trend in the technology world. So I guess, Wes, I'd start with you. Have you had a chance to, to look at any of this stuff yet? Does anything stand out as you as something that that's may impact education or the educational field? Well, you know, it's interesting. This is I'm going to be starting my fourth year at our school, and as a, as a successful independent private school, um, you know, they're there's a lot of challenges. Sometimes people will look at, a, at an independent school and just think, oh, gosh, you have everything, you know, all resources. Um, you know, when you're successful traditionally, that, that sometimes means that innovation and uh, doing things differently might not just be embraced wholeheartedly. And, and so as we have looked at digital literacy, uh, digital citizenship certainly has been a big theme, looking at screens and, and, and kind of having a critical eye for it. You know, part of what what resonates with me with with this is just, you know, the impact of the Internet and the ways in which literacy is changing and commerce is changing and the importance that we have to, you know, bring um, not only these tools, but to to be able to bring a fluency and a skill set into the classroom so that students are going to be um, adept communicators and you know, contributors. So, you know, to, to Michael's, uh, I think, expertise with, with entrepreneurship and the ways in which students can take their ideas and, and bring them out to the world to make a difference. You know, technology is playing such a, a vital role in that. So I would say if you like charts and graphs, you will love the 294 slides in Mary Meeker's uh, slide deck because it's definitely, you know, chock full of them. But I think much like... Um, the, the did you know series and these other you know videos and things that are sort of a shock and awe gosh the world is changing and china's ascendant and and all of this you know it's just a reminder about the quick pace of our society and the and the the fundamental role it's like and i've used this term before or this phrase i mean we're all computer people now you know the ways in which sometimes teachers and other adults will kind of distance themselves. And I just, you know, I'm not a technology person. It's like, hey, you know, we're all users of the pencil. We're all users of the screen. And I think that's a mind shift change that, that generationally we're, we're in between because we've still got some people, you know, not, not embracing that. So, Michael, have you seen anything in particular as you've made your transition across Kansas, you know, Michigan, Kansas, San Diego, and I'm, I would guess you're, are you working on a, on a distributed team uh, geographically as far as how you guys are functioning? We are. So, yeah, so most of us are in San Diego. We have one team member in Pittsburgh, which is where we have our uh, biggest contingent of uh, ed corps or education corporations. These are the student-run businesses that we support. Um, but I, I wanted to uh, pick up on a couple of things here. So the the concept of um, sort of like these screen protections or, or the, um, some, some aspects, features of these, uh, of this technology that can help actually limit 
screen usage. Um, I think, I think this is in the right direction. Um, personally, I think, uh, we, uh, we aren't as equipped as we would like, uh, in terms of engaging with these kinds of technologies and to be able to intentionally limit ourselves, I think is a, uh, is a huge move in the right direction. Um, I, for a while, experimented with the, uh, the black and white screen. Uh, I read, um, I can't remember where, uh, a little while back about how it is less alluring, less attractive. Uh, it, it, you know, can help make you not want to look at it all the time. Uh, and so I, I used it for a while. Uh, and then when I would want to watch YouTube or something, I would flip it off so I can get the full color. And then at some point I forgot to actually go back. So maybe... Uh, maybe this conversation will inspire me to to put that back on, um, but I, I do think there's there's something important about uh, this sort of self limitations, self limiting behavior um, that that's valuable, and if tech can help with that, I think I think that's worth it um, or, or something we should embrace. Um, and the other piece, um, Jason, that you mentioned about videos for learning. So one of the other projects uh, that we're working on is a uh, what we're describing as a professional social network for educators that is video based. Um, and it's not video based in kind of the YouTube or teacher tube sense where you're going to go uh, and watch a 30 minute video on how to give a lesson or a particular piece of technology. But instead it's using video as a, as a conversation catalyst, as sort of conversation kindling. So one of the challenges that we found with, um, we'll call it video learning is that it's great that you can go and watch a video and learn a particular skill or about a product uh, or about a service. But what often doesn't happen is the connection between you as the viewer and the person who actually created that video. Uh, and so in education, in K-12 education in particular, educators often are doing their work in silos, they're disconnected, uh, they rarely have opportunities to collaborate. Um, we heard this from the hundreds of educators that we work with, as well as countless conversations with educators across the country. And so considering that fact that they're the sort of disconnected, they're, they're often, un, they feel unsupported. Um, and considering the power of video as, uh, I would argue, the next best thing to a face-to-face -face interaction uh, in real life, um, we're approaching video as uh, in sort of a Snapchat format with diminishing video. So capping the videos uh, at, you know, three minutes, having them delete after 48 hours, all with the goal of using these videos to ask questions, to, to, to seek ideas, uh, to share reflections or big wins that are taking place in the classroom. Um, and then viewers of that would be able to reach out and say, hey, that was a great idea. You know, I'd love to talk to you more. And so we're building, um, you know, a, a platform that will allow for that kind of connectivity. So it's just a different, a different, um, you know, take on video, if you will, um, that I think, you know, that we're really excited about. And we know, I think in one of um, Mary Meeker's slides, there's a, uh, I don't know if you, you saw this, but there are 20 takeaways. There's sort of a Cliff's Notes version, uh, which was helpful uh, in uh, in just kind of consuming her robust exploration into uh, <laughs> into uh, um, her the trends. Um, and I think there was one about video as being a, a much more powerful um, or a growing medium uh, in, in, for communication, for learning. Uh, and so uh, I, d I just uh, I wanted to to kind of throw that in there.
Absolutely. Well, a couple of segues to, to take from that. Um, one, I'm going to, I'll just do a quick, quick share of one of our articles under social media updates. This is nine to five Mac today on June 6th. Instagram plans new long form video hub to compete with YouTube and Snapchat discover. Pretty interesting because, uh, you know, Instagram's just been limited to the 60 second videos. Um, video is huge. And the most interesting thing about that is they're going to have a requirement that all the videos are in vertical format. So one of my things when I teach teachers about using video is, you know, you know, turn the camera. Don't, don't, you know, constrain yourself and lose out on that screen time. But just, I don't, I don't think we're grasping yet. And we should, you know, after the Obama election and, and just, it's so many different things point to the power of, of YouTube as a platform, the power of video and the amount of consumption that is taking place and creation on mobile, you know, platforms. Um, but then the other segue, which kind of gets to the screen time and the limits and the intentionality that we want to have with our use of technology and encourage for students is that second article in the show notes right after the Mary Meeker article. And this is a Sydney Morning Herald from June 4th. The wheels are falling off technology in schools by Microsoft. And basically um, what Microsoft is doing is, is highlighting how you really don't want to just throw devices into the classroom. You really don't want to just tell everyone, yeah, sure, get out your phone whenever. You know, smartphones can be very distracting. Technology uh, doesn't necessarily, you know, increase engagement. And so um, they are, they're highlighting, there's a book, I guess, that they've actually uh, released. Let's see, I should have uh, pulled that out. Um, so it's, um, well, shoot. There it is. Um, it's well. It's called Transforming Education. So it's it's describing that book as an intervention, arguing schools across the world have not paid enough attention, planning for technology, or understanding how it'll help. So I definitely think some of the backlash that we're seeing when it comes to screen time and digital citizenship, you know, does have to. We've talked about this all the time on the show. The addictive nature of technology and how powerful it is. Um, and we need to always just keep bringing it back to learning and bringing it back to you know what what is it that we want to accomplish and you know technology for technology's sake is not going to be the answer it should be an important tool in our toolkit and we shouldn't be you know discarding these these powerful platforms but at the same time we, we need to be intentional about it all so dr Neifer, any any thoughts yeah i mean i guess i would add one other piece to this that uh um you know, uh, the, the video piece is an interesting uh, uh, piece for me in, in light of my day job. And one of the things that in my mind makes terrible e-learning is this notion that you can uh, kind of bottle up something that happens in a classroom in a video and then hand it out to the masses. And that's going to replicate a face-to-face -face classroom environment. And I get a little tired of the what is better online uh, uh, classes or face-to-face -face classes because that's such a, a, a shallow question in light of the difference in the environments. In fact, every time an online environment tries to mimic a face-to-face -face environment, I think it does a pretty poor job of doing that. But when the online environment takes advantage of its strengths and minimizes its weaknesses by focusing only on what it can do best, it can oftentimes be a very compelling environment. The worst in video is when you try to put an hour-long lecture on YouTube and say, hey, I'm teaching this class today via in this way. Not that there is an inherent value in that somewhere. I still go back to and, and, and watch uh, quite frequently because I enjoy them, uh, the University of California Berkeley History Department 
department at one point put up lectures from all of its 100, 200, and 300 level classes, and they were masterfully done, really well thought out. But you know, I that's also my content area, right? That's the area that I studied as as an undergraduate student. It's 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 inherently quite interesting to me in general. But I've I've talked to teachers that have attempted to put a a, a 15 minute, 20 minute, 30 minute. 50 minute video online via YouTube. And, you know, as I, as I explained to them, you are shifting the power dramatically when you put something on a distance learning platform, right? If every kid in a 300-person lecture hall had a stop button that they could stop the speaker, that speaker would probably not survive the hour, right? Like that that the environment's just too different. And when you put in those kind of empowering pieces, you, at minimum, you have to break that part into pieces or you need to create a, a give and take or back and forth. And that's where I think your platform that, that you're suggesting in regards to uh, like a social network that limits video, it's still utilizes, and I like that notion that it, it uh, sunsets, that it, it disappears after a couple of days, because that immediacy, I think, also provides a, 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 a an onus to log in and to go to that network, because uh, you know, it will disappear. You could be missing out on conversation that otherwise would be valuable. I understand why teachers flock to YouTube. I understand why teachers flock uh, towards other teachers on YouTube, despite it being, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking about Twitter. I understand why teachers flock to Twitter. I understand why they utilize it as a platform. I think it's it's uh, well below what teachers really need for meaningful collaboration. But in absence of another platform, um, you know, I, I think that that's where, where folks will go. But Michael, I think what you're suggesting in regards to finding a way to utilize something a little more personal sounds quite fascinating. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, uh, and I should mention um, we, right now uh, it is called EdSpace. So you can go to our fresh landing page with limited copy on it. Uh, and no pictures, edspace.live, you can check it out, uh, or at least sign up, uh, to, to hear more. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was our, that was our thinking. Um, it's, the world is, is, we'll say awash in content. Um, but what it is not awash in is high quality relationships, supportive relationships, especially in the education space. Uh, it, it, you know, there's a lot of conversation around growing your, your PLN, your professional learning network, finding your tribe, all these things that matter. And when you ask educators what, you know, really help them get through it or what helped them thrive. They talk typically about other people. They don't say like, oh, well, I went to YouTube and that saved my teaching career. They say, I'm teaching with an incredible group of people or, you know, I use some technologies uh, that exist in order to connect with them, uh, be able to ask them questions, be able to text them when I'm struggling, those kinds of things. That's what's, that's what's very important. Um, and, and just to, to the, um, the article's point, I think technology in, in education is similar to technology in all the other domains. It can be valuable. It can be incredibly powerful. It can be harmful. It can be wasteful. Um, and I think what we're tending to see now is that if there are educators who have been working in the space for 10, 20, 30 years and these technologies are only, you know, five years old, um, the way education is currently set up, the way professional learning is currently set up, there, we shouldn't be overly surprised that educators are not as versed and savvy in some of these technologies as one might hope. And so when students come in and then there's this new technology and the teacher's trying to figure it out and they also have the pressure and the constraints that come with education broadly, um, you know, it, it wouldn't be, it, it, I am not surprised um, that there are concerns by even, you know, big corporations like Microsoft that says, hold on a second, uh, we need to rethink this. We need to approach this differently. Uh, we need to, you know, baby steps first with some of these technologies uh, as opposed to just simply 
you know, presuming that they're the savior uh, or that they're the silver bullet or that all we need to do is, you know, turn on, quote, turn on the technology. And now students are going to learn that much better because it's technology. Right. Uh, I think that's the mistake. And so, I, you know, I can appreciate Microsoft uh, acknowledging this, uh, although, you know, I don't know if they acknowledge in their in this particular article uh, the extent to which they're contributing to uh, to some of these struggles. But it's good that they they're at least acknowledging the, the, the challenge. Couple connections with that. I find that idea of the expiring content to especially create immediacy, uh, and direct connections fascinating. Uh, Matt Miller had a conference this past December and actually he may have done this before. I don't know if this was the first year or not. Peggy can tell us, but it's called the Ditch Summit. And so he had different keynotes. Um, and then you can only watch them for a certain amount of time. He brought them back around Christmas for a little bit, but then they're offline. Um, Peggy and I, uh, as well as Jason, have been involved with the K-12 online conference uh, for over a decade. And that conference, you know, the, the, co- the content is there, but it lives forever. But it's very interesting in terms of, of the need to have some immediacy, especially when you want to have multiple people gather around sort of the virtual uh, campfire. And, you know, we're just living in a, in a world of incredible, you know, content. And so, the whole thing about how do I create immediacy and then have conversations. And then the second connection to that is I love, first off, just the, the way that you've got the uh, flowing, you know, uh, liquid there at the top. And man, that is, a, I could just, you know, I want that on my wall, you know, just really big. Uh, this is on the edspace.live site, but you're talking about random collisions, hidden superpowers. That speaks to me about being a connected educator. Um, I've had three themes for the, the last couple of years to, to be safe, to be connected and to tell stories. And these last two, I really want to focus on with teachers this next year because many of us are isolated still. We're not, we haven't had those really powerful aha experiences connecting with someone else and the way in which serendipity can play into that. And then just friendship and relationship, you know, um, Peggy is such a, a wonderful uh, advocate for connected learning and the classroom 2.0 live community. That's a Saturday webinar that happens. I just really think that's amidst all the Cambridge Analytica, Facebook negative, you know, we're hearing all this bad stuff about trolling and Twitter and there's, there's all this negative stuff, but there continues to be such awesome connect. So, so many awesome connections happening in education and still really, I think a small number of educators that are participating in that. So I'm excited to learn about the work that you're doing. And I think, you know, just what you're highlighting there about random collisions and hidden superpowers, you know, that, that encapsulates a lot of that. Thanks. Yeah. And, and, there's a great piece um, by Angela Myers, and I'll, I'll drop it in the uh, in the show notes uh, in a second, um, where she talks about tactical serendipity. Tactical serendipity being this intentional seeking of random occurrences, essentially. And so that really spoke to us because things like conferences are are spaces where tactical serendipity comes into play. You're going there on purpose. You're picking out a session on purpose because you're interested in the speaker or the session topic. You're going to sit down and then there's going to be somebody next to you or somebody's going to ask a question or you're going to walk up to, to meet the speaker at the end and you're going to stand in line with somebody and, and meet them. And, and we have found, and, and I think this is, you know, I'd love to hear, to hear your thoughts as well, um, that some of those, um, some of those kinds of interactions tend to yield some really powerful relationships over time. And so we figure, well, wait a minute, there really isn't a virtual space where this can take place. So Twitter is, is the most used, uh, you know, sort of the most used, um, 
professional, we'll say, uh, social media platform by educators it, it, for this kind of interacting. Um, but it's not used by most. It's used by something like 13% of educators are on Twitter. Uh, so the vast majority of them aren't even engaging this way. And we know things like Facebook are much more insular and much more kind of uh, personal as opposed to professional. YouTube doesn't really have this kind of interaction. Um, and so while you can, you can stumble into people on Twitter by searching hashtags, uh, it's also just less likely sort of by nature, by the way that, that Twitter is structured. And so we figured, well, wait a minute. If we create an environment where there's channels that are based on interests, similar to, to maybe, a, um, you know, sessions in a, at a conference, and you could go to these channels and you could post questions or you could share stories from the classroom or you could, you know, maybe you're reading a great book and you, you came across a passage and you want to read a quote, uh, you know, into this particular channel uh, with a particular interest. Other people with that interest are going to go to that channel. They could jump into your video. It's only going to be a couple minutes long. And that's the kind of tactical serendipity we believe um, is going to lead to lead to more um, supportive, connected, collaborative relationships, um, uh, and that can help sort of bolster and strengthen um, the way educators approach their work. And so that that's kind of really what. Um, let me find this article for you and drop it in before I forget. Um, but yeah, tactical serendipity. Um, and there was another one actually that I came across in my in my doctoral work that focused more on career, but I think it's relevant here. And the, the term is called planned happenstance. So a similar sort of thing where there's there's some intentionality and then also um, some spontaneity and kind of what happens when those two things are combined. Awesome. Actually, I got the link. So I uh, uh, dropped in the tactical serendipity and I just, just tweeted to Angela. So that is oh, great. That's awesome stuff. Um, Jason, where should we go? We got to talk. We're going to have to do some Apple stuff and we're going to need to do some security stuff. So where, where, where do you want to go next? Yeah, let's do Apple. Um, so, uh, WWDC, the worldwide developer conference started this past Monday and I believe it's actually still going, uh, right now. I have a friend that's actually uh, a friend from high school that is a developer for Nike that, that, that attends every year. And, um, I have to first say that this will not be the typical podcast wringing our hands about Apple dying. Um, which is the uh, a favorite uh, a commentary a game of everyone around, but um, this was very intentionally. It sounds like not a hardware uh, piece. It was focused entirely on software. You know, thus the the, the developer conference moniker. And uh, I, a lot of interesting things happened there. But I do want to point out two things that that I think are very interesting. The first one is that. Uh, it, it was a definitely partisan pro-Apple crowd. And the reason why I know that is because there were some completely bizarre things that got a very strong positive reaction. Like they announced um, that the stocks app in iOS 12 will now include news articles about the stocks. And yay, big thing from the crowd. So, um, you know, it, for those of you that don't know anything about any of the Apple events, there are oftentimes employees in the first several rows of that. Journalists are usually in a section off the side. They, generally speaking, uh, due to personal ethical purposes, stay pretty quiet and sit on their hands during that time. And then usually they will invite in some additional Apple partisans. But I did think it was kind of interesting that people did get very excited about some individual pieces. But I also want to note that there are some very interesting functionalities that exist in iOS 12. It was interesting enough to me that for about three seconds yesterday, I did consider maybe going back to an iPhone because of how interesting some of those pieces were. I did too. Um, I like too. that. And, and the two I want to point out, the distraction uh, uh, modification systems, I think are really interesting. Um, I've been talking about digital distraction for three years now in context of K-12 
education. It's a very important topic for me. Uh, and you know, the fact that manufacturers are stepping up and doing something about that, I think is super great. And if you go around and listen to uh, Tim Cook has gone on some kind of like media charm tour in the last 72 hours as well. I heard him on CNN. I heard him on NPR. I heard him on uh, um, CNBC in the last couple of days. So he's doing more media than he usually does post a, a conference, but he's the first to admit that, you know, we, we, we have these wonderfully powerful tools and we want to give you means to control them uh, yourself. So the other piece I do want to point out though, and then I, I'd love to hear both of your opinions on, on anything from, from the, the announcements is uh, I watched the keynote via the uh, This Week in Tech uh, live feed. So uh, Leo Laporte and I think Megan Maroney was the other one that that was uh, giving commentary during the the piece. And I watched it after the fact. I didn't watch it live. And something Leo Laporte said stuck in my head. He said these are really awesome. I think these are really great tweaks they're putting into place. And the one he was particularly talking about, they're using a really ift style kind of de facto scripting language that if your phone sees this, you can do that. You can start off with different patterns of apps in the morning. They're opening up uh, 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 triggers in apps. So in the morning, you know, if you press a button, it's going to turn your lights on and then make your favorite Starbucks order via the Starbucks app for you to pick up 29 minutes later, yada, yada, yada. That's all really interesting. But he didn't make an important point that what you know, I might like uh, as a nerd is probably not going to make it into the kind of uh, uh, psyche of, of most users. And a lot of these advanced pieces, and I think it's a little risky for Apple to go in this direction, not because it doesn't make the nerds happy, because it does very much so, but I don't know if a lot of these more detail-oriented, uh, minutia-based, uh, in-the-weeds functionality that allow you to really, you know, tweak your phone with scripts and uh, de facto event matching and that sort of thing, if that's going to make a lot of big difference to the typical end user. But a lot of really interesting things in iOS 12, and for the first time since I became an Android user in 2013, I was briefly tempted um, to maybe get an iPhone again i i was too and i've only watched 15 minutes of it um i gotta say first off look at the screens that they present with okay that is the most amazing wall of digital screens freaking ever i mean wow it's incredible um, we have our apple store here in oklahoma city and we were one of the first stores nationwide i think to get this new massive wide screen we heard it was so big you couldn't even drive it with a mac they had to have some some kind of special you know probably linux box if it was microsoft you know we'd heard about that but you know anyway just massive signage and so uh but that was that was part of my thinking as well um so the article that I dropped in the, the Apple section here on our notes um, is from Ars Technica today. The end of OpenGL support plus other updates Apple didn't share at the keynote. Um, the highlights here were number one, um, we do have a fair number still of the 2012 era MacBook Pros at school, and that will be supported by the next iteration of Mac OS, which will be called Mojave, breaking with their mountain uh, mountain tendency. Um, interesting about the, uh, what they think is going to be the disabling USB access. I just had a phone call from one of our other area tech directors yesterday who has some of the board members for their district traveling to China. And a friend had recommended, Hey, Wes went to Egypt or, you know, would speak to that. And so we're talking Chrome and other phones and, 
you know, do you want all of your stuff sucked off, uh, you know, they, through the security services or custom services of either another country or the United States. So it's interesting how Apple is continuing to address that. And one, oh, then the last thing they talk about was two-factor authentication. So <clears throat> we did require all of our teachers and staff to move to two-factor authentication for Google accounts this past year. And I really, you know, think we're ahead of the game with that. Um, surveying the other independent schools in, in, uh, Texas primarily that, that are a part of our, uh, associations, you know, less than 25% of our schools had been doing that at the time. And so Apple is going to facilitate the ease with which you, you can do two-factor much in the same way that that uh, Google has done on Android as far as just being able to open an app and tap and say, yeah, that's me, you know, authorize that. So sure. I agree that this isn't going to, you know, get the headlines and the excitement with, with the hardware and the other things. But, hey, it's great to have this innovation. And back to last week where we talked about the hinge and, you know, where, where Apple's going to go with all this stuff. Um, Cook was not in the keynote, but in the interviews, I think this was – um, is it with, oh, anyway, he's, they're, they're not going to merge Mac OS and iOS, you know, they're saying that's, but, but they may assist the developers in, in porting those things. So anyway, yeah, it does, it does make me consider whether my cheap Android device is what I want to stick with. So, uh, where are you with all this, Michael? Are you solidly in the Apple camp? Are you have a, a foot in both? And, uh, you know, did the announcements this week sway you to, Transform your digital life uh, with with one something something different. Good question. So I will say uh, that I do have an iPhone. Uh, I feel like I'm in I'm in enemy territory here a little bit, but I do not have an Apple sticker on the back of my. I do have a Prius, uh, so I'm not I'm not like a super you know I'm not an Apple head. We'll say. Um, one of the things, uh, Jason, you mentioned, um, you're not, you're not, you're not sure if the you know quote non nerds will appreciate some of the. Uh, the scripting uh, and the sort of advanced functionality um, that is possible. I, the only thing that got me thinking about was um, I think if, if we'll just call them non-nerds uh, to be nice, if that's a, a word. Civilians uh, is what I sometimes call them. That's right. Um, I think if, if, as simple as if they're able to find value, if they're, if that cre- is, is able to yeah. create efficiencies that allow them, uh, some ease or some, um, uh, the word is, is escaping me right now, but, um, if it allows them to, to do the kinds of things that they normally do, uh, with less strife, with less pain, then I think, uh, I think they'll be able to lean into them, even if there is some sophistication on the front end. And again, I, sure. some of the, uh, some of these announcements are, I guess, uh, you know, a bit beyond my, um, my, my literacy here, but, um, but, but that would be my, my, my response is that I think people are, are always, uh, attracted to making things easier. Um, and I think that, that, one of the, the, the questions that I kind of wrangle with around, we'll call it quote technology in the classroom is what kinds of things are lost when we, all we do is continue to speed up, right? What, what happens when everything, you know, can be done with one button when, you know, my toothbrush can get toothpaste on it and fly around and come and, you know, brush my teeth in bed. And when I don't have to ever get up and put my own clothes on, I can just sort of like stand up and my clothes put, right? Like these are things that are maybe in some kind of dystopian future, but 
my question always with all of these advancements is like, what kinds of things are lost? And so um, that, that just is something that comes to mind with, you know, as we move into faster, crisper, cleaner, you know, Amazon Echo, all these things, uh, these sort of newish technologies that, that are making our life easier, what are we losing? We're all going to join the uh, airship in Wally uh, and be, you know, just driving driving around with our little remote controls. Uh, yeah, increasing well, in size. And and I would say that, that I like like the, like that notion about what what efficiencies is are, are are things like the operating system adding on the phone. And something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that, um, you know, in all this talk about you know uh, the, the evils of social networking and the impact of sharing all your data and, and blah blah blah. And we'll get into I'm sure a couple more things related to that tonight. Is that I do think that the typical end user is not spending enough time figuring out what are the productive things I can do with my phone. Right? Like it's you know we can offer Obviously, you know, uh, consume information with the phones, right? And something that, Wes, I've always appreciated about your advocacy is that, you know, you can always create with these devices, too. So it should really be a two-way street. Creation is as important as consumption. I've always very appreciated about that advocacy on your part. But I think that there is a practical piece that oftentimes gets missed. You know, if you're if the first thing you're downloading on your new phone is is, is Facebook and, and, and Hulu, you're not you're taking advantage of the fact that you could be using your phones for some pretty powerful workflow things to make your life not just easier and more efficient, but, you know, you could spend more time doing stuff you want to be doing, whether that is uh, being on Hulu or it's out in the great outdoors. But, uh, you know, and I, I, I it, there's amazing things that you can do in 2018 with a phone that uh, I think about in context of traveling. Like, I don't really need to carry with me a book bag full of stuff anymore. I can really do 99% of productive things on my phone. That's flatly amazing to me. It means that you can still pry away my, my uh, carry bag for my cold, cold dead hands. But the, the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, that your phone can do things. It can be a scanner. It can be a, a, a note taker. It can be a, a collector of things that you can review and use later. That's, that's well beyond the passive receipt of information. And so I think re-engaging our relationship with these devices, you know, going back to the, the note earlier about, you know, needing to kind of directly teach these things in classrooms that's where when we're not talking about computer literacy, when we're not talking about uh, what teachers not being good models for students on, on how to use these devices productively, that's the risk, I think, as part of that process. So I definitely want to talk about some security articles and probably the privacy. I want you, Jason, if you would, to here in a minute, speak to that Firefox switch article. It's very provocative, I think, you know, as folks drinking Google Kool-Aid. And, and please, Michael, you're not in enemy territory. You know, Jason's got the iPad there. Um, every device in our home, it, with the exception of uh, three Chromebooks and this Android, you know, I, until November, I was I was iOS the whole way. I was there, you know, in McConey Center or whatever, you know, 2007 Macworld jobs announced it. I was there. So anyway, I do, I do see I the think, white headphones. I, so yeah, yeah, no, no, we're, we got, you know, we're Mac, Mac air there. Here's the prosomy. <laughs> um, security. This is a, an article update from two weeks ago. We talked about this hack where all of these home routers, a lot of them in the Ukraine, but others worldwide, um, had been compromised with this three stage hack. Um, including the stage one, which actually survives a reboot. And so there's some updates to this from Ars Technica today. Um, VPN filter, which is the name of this malware, infecting half a million devices is worse than we thought. And what, 
It's incredible. Uh, this, this quote I put into the show notes, they, the hackers, can modify your bank account balance so that it looks normal while at the same time they're siphoning off money and potentially PGP keys and things like that. They can manipulate everything going in and out of the device. Um, the big aha for the security researchers, and this is from a paper that Talos, who are the Cisco security researchers put out, we just had a little Cisco webinar today and we're hearing about, you know, the geniuses of, of Talos is that this isn't just, hey, let's get a hold of these routers so that we can do denial service attacks and basically use them as as pawns in our botnet. But the actual owners of these routers are the targets as far as being able to capture that information and that data. So on the note of Apple, I'm continuing to feel nice and safe as I had for years with malware running a Mac because you used to not have to even run antivirus anti-malware, um, you know, we've still got the the Apple router. We haven't made a jump to any of these newer generation, you know, mesh or whatever. And so I'm thrilled to see Apple is not on the list of compatible devices. But important to recognize um, the FBI is, is recommending everybody reboots their routers. And, you know, the level of sophistication with these hacks is just, it's crazy in terms of what, what these agents are, are able to do here. So thoughts on this are, are, have you guys rushed out to reboot your, your routers uh, or am I, you know, chicken little here uh, reading too much Ars Technica? Well, well I can just quickly say I yeah, use the Google router. Um, I knew it was safe, um, but I rebooted it anyways. I just thought what was stunning about that is when the FBI tells America, reboot your routers, uh, there's probably something there, right? It seems like that's such a an esoteric thing to tell people, right? Like I think a lot of people would would struggle to describe what a router is in context of their home wireless network. Um, my parents, both bright, uh, uh, delightful senior citizens, um, I called to ask them to do it because they're using uh, whatever crappy router came with the cable internet service. It seems like it would be you know prime suspect for hacking one. And I, I finally had just to tell them go unplug the internet box and plug it back in again and call it good. And yeah, I think that the, the most stunning part about that, other than wow, um, that that you know we've talked a lot about internet things devices being uh, susceptible to hacking, you know, for the FBI to come out and say that that was pretty stunning. Yeah, I uh, I I was stunned as well. Um, I have not unplugged my internet device for fear of um, not being able to to join this webinar. So right after this <laughs> webinar, I plan to unplug it, give it a little breather. Uh, and then plug it back in. But yeah, again, this is um, kind of, you know, beyond my, my, my technology, but, um, it, it, you know, this stuff is, is, is scary. Uh, I think there's, and especially for the vast majority of people who, and I would probably include myself in this, who don't totally know what uh, a lot of these things mean. Um, it's especially scary when, when folks like the FBI come out and say, uh, you, you know, you're going to want to unplug uh, for a minute because, there's some real things out there. Yeah. And I mean, the, 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 the amount to which we are susceptible to things and just, you know, the way that the internet has, has continued to evolve. Um, Hey, we need, we need white hats. We need our students to be using their, their skills for good and not for evil. And there's going to be a continuing need. We're, we're a long way away from what uh, Ray Kurzweil and some others talking about artificial intelligence will say where, you know, we have unhackable devices. You know, we think about implanting these things in our bodies, biotech, you know, the importance of not having a, a piece of, of malware and virus and in that stuff, you know, we've, we've got a long way to go. Um, so anyway, great to have researchers being able to publish stuff and, 
uh, it, you know, a, a challenge. If anybody out there has used a Raspberry Pi, I think we talked a few weeks ago. Um, I think it was on the Note to Self podcast. Perhaps they they had an experiment where <clears throat> they took a Raspberry Pi, about a thirty dollar little small computer running Linux, and then put that as essentially a man in the middle attack, which is a lot like what VPN filter can do. So it sat between the home and all the devices connected to the internet, you know, and then was doing captures to you know be able to see that data and whatnot. Anyway, it makes me think about that and think about students and how we need to increase the savvy of students, not just being the consumers, but, you know, uh, we mentioned last week, uh, our guest, the uh, Douglas Rushkoff, you know, the, the program or be programmed book and that idea of, of wanting students to have agency over, over code and, and over devices. So, um, I want to talk about the privacy Facebook and then we'll have to probably do geeks of the week. I, I read it, but Jason, yeah, I think you dropped it in. Um, the article uh, from Fast Company, buy Chrome, like bye-bye Chrome, why I'm switching to Firefox and you should too. Are are, are you doing it? Is this <laughs> is this your move? <laughs> well, so something that I, I always find interesting about these claims about Google is that advertising funds the Internet, right? Like I, 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 I it, it seems like that, that I've had to repeat this more and more lately. And the one that I thought was most stunning and a lot of people made fun of, um, uh, the congressional leaders that were grilling Mr. Zuckerberg a couple of months ago over the Facebook thing. But when um, I can't remember which uh, member of Congress asked this, well, how do you make money, Facebook? Because you're not selling anything. It's like, well, Senator, we we, we allow for advertising. Um, and uh, like, I, 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 I agree that when you're using a Chrome browser and you're signed in to your Google account and you're utilizing Google search and you're on Google properties, and you're doing Google stuff, of course you are exposing your private data to an advertiser. I mean, that's the way the system works. I don't think it is hidden knowledge that that is the case. But I think one of the things that we have to come to grips with broadly in Internet culture is, okay, so what does that mean? So uh, Firefox, I'm not saying if you use Firefox, the Internet falls apart, right, because suddenly advertisers can't track you. What it does mean, though, is that we need to have some soul-searching about the expense of things on the Internet. And that's, uh, I mean, I've been fighting this 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 notion for, for 20 years now as, as first a classroom teacher and now as an administrator that you don't need to invest in X, Y, because the internet exists, right? Like the internet provides for all. Now, obviously, we're in a much better place in 2018 than we were in, in 1998 when I first started teaching. For example, there is an amazing open internet resource movement where um, open education resources are available that are, are crafted by experts, are high quality, they're very malleable, they can be utilized in a number of different contexts. So, you know, I, I don't want to draw too firm of a line to saying that, you know, uh, the internet can't be a free resource for things. But freedom and free are words that are very, very complicated. And so, yeah, obviously there is a financial relationship that's going on with your data, no matter which system you're using. I, I, I don't like the hate that's put on Google for this, however, because they will at least let you see all of your data. You can go in and dig around, and, 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 and Google will tell you just about everything about your account. You can tweak things. You can turn things on or off. You can have contextual advertising modified quite 
quite substantially, which decreases the need for Google to utilize and monetize your data. So I, Firefox is a security-built browser. That article is correct. It starts off uh, with defaults being more security-minded than any Internet browser, which includes uh, whether you use the open-source Chromium project or the Microsoft Edge browser or uh, if you're one of the three people using Opera. Um, that something That's all can be a, a part of that uh, uh, process, right? But don't be fooled. Like, Google isn't a bad Apple actor here in that I think it gives you way more controls than the other vast advertising networks that exist to sell things to you and track your personal and private data. So, yes, that article is is, is provocative and interesting. And I have to say, since uh, Firefox released their so-called quantum browser in late 2017, it has made it more frequently into my rotation than it ever had before. It's fast and sleek and doesn't use that much memory, unlike Chrome. Um, but I think that it, it's just an exchange we are in part making for free Internet resources. Any thoughts, Michael? A few. Um, I use Chrome. I like uh, some of my extensions, like Buffer in particular. Uh, and I have also used Firefox, and I have found it to be, as Jason described, it's fast, um, it's it's slick. Um, I like how they have approached the, the building of Firefox, where the default settings are as they are, and this sort of an opt-in to sharing more or giving more. Um, you know, there's uh, great research. I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna mess this up. Um, maybe by Richard Thaler and a book called Nudge, um, where he talks about how I think I'm pretty sure it's him. I could be messing this up, but um, how he talks about vast differences in blood donation rates, and there were no, there was no great way to to there were no um, uh, like sort of noticeable or, or obvious distinctions between. Finland, for example, that had a 98% um, organ or blood donation rate or organ donation rate versus Sweden that had a 4% organ donation. I think it's organs, not blood. So organ donation rate. And, you know, these countries are very similar across a ton of different metrics. What they found out was that when you go to uh, get your driver's license in Finland, uh, it was an opt uh, out. It was automatic that you were going to be an organ donor unless you check the box. Mm -hmm. And in Sweden, it was an opt-in. You had to check the box that said, I want to donate my organs. And that simple, um, like I think they call it decision architecture, um, that simple modification to the decision architecture has vast, uh, had, had major implications. And so I think, um, for me, it, 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 you know, gets me to think about, well, wait a minute, what are the, the design implications, what are the decision-making implications when the default is such that, um, you know, privacy, security, um, limited data sharing uh, is, is the default versus the opposite where, yeah, on both, on both um, browsers, you can modify and tweak to your liking, but it's one thing when one is, you know, the, the, the gates are open a little bit and you can close them. And it's, the, it's another thing when the gates are a little bit closed and you can open them. So that was, um, that was one thing that came to mind. The other that comes to mind for me for this is um, there's a, uh, a historian, an Israeli historian, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote a book called Sapiens and another one called Homo Deus. Um, and he talks about how uh, over time and, and into the future, 
corporations or, or, or entities are going to have so much data and so much computing power and so much understanding of who we are as people that they're going to be able to begin making decisions for us without us even knowing. And so that, you know, could be again dystopian. It could be a bit far away. Um, but it just it gets me, you know, being a little bit more mindful of, um, the kind of information that, uh, is being shared, the kind of data that that's out there. And, um, you know, if it's po I don't know if it's probably not possible other than not using the internet, um, to like turn off the data flow, the, 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 the contribution to the, to the data ether. Um, but it is possible, I think, to, to tighten the nozzle a little bit. Um, and so that's kind of what, um, uh, what this article got me thinking about. Awesome, man. Well, um, I would do want to let people know if you want to be upset about privacy, Facebook is the, the number one place to target your ire. And so an article that gives you practical tips for that from the Washington Post from their science alert section on June 3rd is titled, If You Care About Data, Change These 15 Default Privacy Settings Right Now. Um, now it is talking about uh, Google as well and other platforms, but I did go in on Facebook and, and make some different changes. Uh, it's always interesting to see what they think they know about you. And, you know, there were some things I do not remember, you know, clicking on. Um, and these are, you know, bring it back to the digital citizenship. I want, this is a, I'll, I'll throw this rhetorical question out. We're not going to answer tonight. How do we help get kids to care, to freaking care about privacy? Because as we have had some feedback from our teachers who've been using some advisory time to share some videos with students, you know, a lot of the reaction was, meh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't really care. So anyway, that's a, that's a bigger, bigger issue, but. It's good to have these tools. It's good to hear, you know, you, your your takes on them. And I think we, you know, just like we need to be open to other platforms and, you know, other possibilities for how we do our work and, and how we communicate, um, you know, looking at different browsers and then considering privacy settings and, you know, what we're doing on a personal level, the choices that we're making, um, you know, and how we might not want to go with the, the default settings. GDPR has definitely raised some consciousness, but I think it's actually been just a lot more, you know, email that people have just had to delete and, and probably not take the time that we might ideally take, you know, need to take to understand these policies and make sure, you know, they're, they're doing what we or we're, we're letting the companies do what we want them to do. So we are at the top of the hour. We need to do some geeks of the week. Uh, Jason, why don't we start with you and then we'll go to Michael and then I'll wrap it up. There we go. Hi. Um, new to the podcast this week. Apparently I have a quick thing to share. Um, I've been talking about the Pixel Book, which is Google's uh, uh, kind of proof of concept high-end Chromebook, and it's been sitting in a an Amazon cart for about six months for me now. I'm very tempted by buying one, even though the last thing on earth I need is another computer. But something interesting's happened in the last three weeks. Uh, they've started going down in price. Uh, Best Buy was the first to do it, where they were offering the the uh, main level Pixel Book was down to seven hundred fifty dollars, down from a thousand. And if you had a student coupon, which just so happens they didn't notice that I graduated a couple weeks ago from the University of Montana with the last degree I will ever get, um, the um, they sent me one of those coupons. And if you use the coupon, it takes the, the Pixel Book down to like $660 or something ridiculously low in light of the retail price. And it just so happens that Amazon is now also offering the price at that, that uh, $750 level. And then if you're a student with Student Prime, you can get another 10% off. So I'm 
pretty tempted by this. Again, it's not like I need another Chromebook, but it's just such a beautiful piece of hardware. And a shout out in, in, in case he's listening, Simon Miller, who is a tech director in northern Idaho, let me play with his pixel book for 30 seconds at the NCC conference in February in Seattle. And I immediately fell in love with the build quality. So um, I will spend most of the next week you know, working really hard to not press the buy button. But in case you're interested, there's a link to the Amazon um, uh, uh, advertisement for the $750 Pixelbook. And so if you're so interested or you've been tempted by it for a while, they're now finally coming down in price. Awesome. All right. And, Michael, feel free to do more than one. I know you've gotten a couple there, but what what do you got for us for a geek? Well, I was just going to say maybe maybe Amazon's next uh... – next sort of self-help feature would be the don't buy, don't allow me to buy under no any one conditions. Click. 40 no. click. If you want 40 clicks, That's you right. can... And you got to track around the screen and you got to, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Make it um, Yeah. Uh, so just r- real quick, um, the one that I, I wanted to talk about uh, came out, I think, a week uh, or two ago. Um, and it's uh, an article in EdSurge um, talking about students step up to lead tech implementation uh, at their elementary school. And so this speaks to me for a couple of reasons. Um, Beth Holland, as you mentioned, uh, was the one who, uh, who connected us, who is, uh, I believe, writing her dissertation on technology implementation, uh, and leadership and power and things. So, uh, shout out to her, uh, for, for kind of pointing me in that direction. Um, but what really, uh, excited me or, 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 um, kind of piqued my interest with this one is, uh, I think, too often we, and we talked about it actually in this conversation already, too often we see young people, uh, we broadly see young people as simply consumers of products and services and practices and experiences and much less so as producers or creators. Um, and a lot of the work that, that we've done and that my own personal interest uh, in my dissertation work and so on is around incorporating young people into the, the decision-making process, incorporating them into uh, the things that matter to them. And so if we're bringing technology into classrooms and, and, you know, the adults are the ones that are getting the training and the adults are the ones that are, that are using it and figuring it all out and all with the hope that young people, uh, you know, reap the benefits of it. Um, we would be better off. We, there's something to in, including young people in the deployment, the training, the learning, the figuring out, the testing. Um, the feedback, all these different things. I, I think this is true both for tech implementation uh, and for lesson planning and for guest speakers and field trips. Um, the more opportunities young people have to recognize that their voice does matter, that they have uh, the ability to make decisions that impact their lives and, and the world around them, uh, the, the better they will be. Uh, the more often they have to flex those muscles, the wait a minute, I said something or I did something that affected not only myself, but others around me, the more they can do that, the stronger those muscles get. Uh, and so we want to encourage them uh, and we want to create the, the opportunities for them to do that. And so this article, I think, spoke a bit uh, a bit to that uh, around tech implementation and, and including young people in that. Uh, Fantastic. Well, real quick, uh, I got three. So again, being a little... Uh... 
you know, abusive of my host power here, but I'll be fast. Remote for slides, a Google Chrome extension. I've been doing several workshops I've entitled Getting Organized in Google Drive, talking about Drive File Stream and the ways in which we can use the Finder or the File Manager to go ahead and move files back and forth and um, then be able to just use Team Drives, which is this new feature that Google has for G Suite. Um, use my Android phone to advance my slides and was very pleased with the low latency and how quick that worked. So you just put that... Um, that uh, actually extension on your computer, no matter what you're running, I happen to be running a Chromebook, and then on whatever device you have, iPad, phone, whatever, uh, there's a little web link you go to and you put a little code in, and then you can just click in the web page and advance your slides forward and back. So pretty cool, uh, free remote for slides. Um, YouTube Creators for Change. We've got a great service learning requirement for our students and our service learning person is leaving after years and we've been uh, collaborating. And, and this was just something I saw in the last week that I thought, awesome, you know, use your technology skills, your video power, and, you know, encourage and support social change, whether that's in your community or that's across the globe. And then finally, I should put this one for Peggy George, uh, Steve Hargadon and Lucy Gray, who have organized conferences for years and years, have a new effort called the Hive Summit. You can find that at hivesummit.org. And that looks like a fantastic summer opportunity to, to uh, continue your professional development and professional learning with other educators in the spirit of what we've been discussing in this show with making those kinds of connections, uh, utilizing video, but, you know, making connections to other educators. So we're going to wrap up the show and let you know where you can find us, Michael, when you are not being a guest on different podcasts during the week, where can folks read what you do and what are the main web links that you want them to definitely visit to check out your work? Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, again for inviting me and for having me here. This is a great conversation. Uh, you can find my professional work uh, at www.realworldscholars.org. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MJ Craw, which is uh, where I spend a, a good chunk of time. Uh, and so those are, those are probably the best ways um, to reach me. My email address is at, uh, is at realworldscholars.org. Um, but Twitter, Twitter is probably my go-to spot. All right. And Dr. Neifer, where are you these days now that the doctor has been added to the title? <laughs> yeah, I, although I got to tell you, I have another deadline in 12 days where they want the final copy of the paper now. So I'm, I'm tweaking through some uh, esoteric uh, APA requirements, and then I'll be finally done with that process. But um, I'm on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Uh, I like to post, you know, 10, 15 things a week that I'm, I'm reading, and then I always uh, like to get in discussions there about uh, critical issues of the day. I am a sometimes blogger at the NCCE Tech Savvy Teacher blog blog.ncce.org, where I do work with NCCE to provide professional development school districts across the United States. I just got booked for a return visit to a private school in Boise, Idaho, where I'll be working with a group of personalized learning experts to better implement Google in classroom environments and the, the Google suite in particular. So I'm excited to be able to return back to St. Ignatius School in uh, just outside of, of, of Boise uh, this August. And I'm also bookable at at, at NCC, www.ncc.org under their professional learning uh, uh, page. And then I'm also working on, um, I, I have so many articles started that this started like four or five months ago where I'd start writing a paragraph or two when I was avoiding the work of, of my dissertation. And I, I think I'm going to need to sit down and pick which which two or three of them seem to be most interesting and, and to pull them into a full article format. But I've got something regarding uh, re-envisioning the browser as a power tool as opposed to a window onto the internet. Um, I have a couple of things I'm working on in regards to uh, the challenges of personalized learning. It's not quite a criticism, but 
a reworking of the conversation about what personalized learning looks like. And then I'm also working on an extensive uh, a research brief, I guess is the way of putting it, for a potential uh, side business I, I might be working on, on the power of podcasting as a content engine inside of classrooms, both from a production standpoint for students, but more importantly, that the quality of, of commercially produced podcasts has increased dramatically in the last, I'd say, 24 months. And um, if you're not utilizing podcast content, um, especially if you like to kind of shake things up and go beyond standard textbooks and other kind of prepackaged curriculum elements. There's just a, a shocking amount of great things available that you can give to students in little 20 and 30 minute chunks that's quite engaging. And there happens to be quite a bit of research behind radio and audio production as a means of disseminating content as opposed to video, um, which can sometimes lead to undesirable results, or at least that's what the, the radio folks like to, to talk about. So look for those in the future. They'll be on the Tech Savvy Teacher blog, and then I'll probably also publish those to Medium. Fantastic. I'm Wes Fryer. You can find me on Twitter at WFryer, and you can check out my blog at speedofcreativity.org. The digital citizenship website that we launched at our school in January continues to be online at digsit.us. My latest project for the summer is Make Media Camp, which you can find at makemediacamp.com. There's going to be a couple face-to-face opportunities to learn about making media, but I'm going to be finally throwing together something that will probably happen on Fridays, where we'll be having a, a free hangout to uh, talk about how to create a particular kind of media product. And yes, you might see me ditching, not the textbook, but ditching the Android device in, in lieu of an iPhone here at some point just because of my love of creating. I don't know. That's not a, a definite, Jason. You're just going to have to feed me the additional models that I need to check out. But uh, I, I need to create more powerfully, and I'm, uh, it's, it's, I'm falling short over here. So this is the EdTech Situation Room. We want to thank Peggy George for joining us live. We want to encourage any of you to, if you can, join us live on Wednesdays, where we're usually here at 9 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Uh, Mountain, uh, 7 p.m. if you happen to be Pacific Time. And we want to thank our special guest, Michael, for joining us. Please check out the show notes at edtechsr.com slash links and reach out to any of us using the show notes and our links to Twitter. If you've got any questions, have suggestions for the show, uh, or if you just like to argue, you know, you can argue with us, actually. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Share share links with us. You know, let us let us know what your views are. Um, it's great to have this opportunity each week to to dialogue and dive deeper into some of these articles. So have a great night, everybody.